Does COVID have you feeling stalled at work? Cornell ILR Professional Education can help you get back on the road to career growth. Visit discover.ilr.cornell.edu to get started. Work is all around us. It defines us. The future of work impacts nearly every person on our planet, and the ILR School at Cornell University is influencing policy and practice around the world. In this episode of Work, Exploring the Future of Work, Labor, and Employment, Dean Alex Colbin speaks with Sarah Nelson, International President of the Association of Flight Attendants. Well, thanks a lot for joining us here on the podcast today. I wanted to start off by talking a little about your union, the Association of Flight Attendants. Your members are probably some of the union members in the country that the public is most familiar with seeing doing their work. And any of us who fly gets to see and listen as the flight attendants who are working the flight go about uh, their jobs. Uh, but at the same time, this stereotype of union members is often still uh, rooted in the old image of the often white male auto worker, steel worker, even though today, Airlines are among the most unionized industries in the country. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little about what union representation means for flight attendants and, and why this group has become one of the real strengths of uh, union representation today. Sure. Well, it was um, it was exciting to me this past year to see a real awakening into who union members are and that unions are for everyone. And um, this has been a real challenge uh, throughout the entire existence of my union, which was formed in 1945, our first contract in 1946. And one of the first things that we had to do was to negotiate a seniority list so that we could build right off the bat uh, the inability for management to try to pressure people to trade sex for schedules or give uh, discriminatory uh, treatment uh, against individuals because um, they didn't act right or look right. Um, and that was the basis for all of our challenges to um, beat back discriminatory practices that had us stepping on a weight scale even until 1993 in order to do this work. And so we really had to fight um, to just turn this job into a career and make it possible for anyone with the heart of a flight attendant to be one. We even fought for men to have the same rights on the job. And so that's all fine within ourselves, but we never, ever expected for anyone else to give us that recognition, to hand us respect. Um, we felt that we had to stand together and take care of each other and um, fight for that on our own. But in this past year, there's been a real opportunity for union members to step forward, women specifically, people of color. Um, I give a lot of credit to the Me Too movement. Um, I give a lot of credit to the um, pictures of solidarity from the Women's March. And um, this has really been a moment where we can stand up and say, no, this is for working people. And working people, when they stand together, no matter what job they're doing, have power. Because the reality is that our economy doesn't work if there's one group that can't do their job. And um, that was what was so exciting, actually, 
when we had the New York Times business section, the front page of the Sunday business section saying that flight attendants are powerful. At first, I hated that headline um, (laughs) because I'm so conditioned to people talking about flight attendants in the old sexist way. And so I thought that it was a little jab at us. And then I started to realize, no, this is a real moment. This is a moment where our careers are being pushed forward, where our union is really pushing forward. And the fact is that flight attendant and power was in that headline. And that that was a real paradigm shift. That seems like a real shift that's gone on. The labor movement has always had this tension between uh, cooperative approaches and confrontational approaches. And you think back in time, uh, and particularly think of the 1990s, there seemed to be this effort to try the cooperative approach. You got Saturn at the Saturn plant at General Motors with cooperation with the UAW. And in uh, airlines, you had United with this ESOP and the unions uh, being involved with that. Uh, now it seems like the pendulum shifted, that there's been a shift to um, uh, arguing for a more confrontational approach to, to say that that uh, needs to be the emphasis. Uh, do you think, what do you think is behind this kind of shift? Do you agree with that shift? And, and what do you think is driving that amongst workers and amongst uh, union leaders? I agree with this shift 100%. I mean, the reality is that um, the, the, the GOP, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Right to Work organization has fought for decades to try to destroy unions, to kill unions. And one of the ways they did that was try to define unions as um, as union thugs, <laughs> um, as disconnected with the workers. Um, they stripped away at unions' rights, the ability for um, to conduct sympathy strikes, um, the ability to stand up for one another, the ability to have mass strikes and mass demonstrations. And what that did was it really hampered the ability for workers to understand the power of standing together. And so we, it led to an era of business unionism where we were processing grievances, uh, where we were believing that uh, relationships were going to solve uh, the issues for workers. And that's just totally contradictory with the original purpose of unions, which is for workers to stand together and to take on the big issues um, as a united front and um, use that power. And when you take that power element out of the dynamics here in the employer-employee relationship, then there is a disconnect with the idea of unionism and the, the uh, relatability of workers to unions and how that's about uh, the people who are looking out for their interests, not the management. And so it has become abundantly clear to workers in this country that management is not the one to look out for their interests. You may have one benevolent manager along the way, um, but management comes and goes and workers stay and create the real value. And unless you have an idea that your power comes from standing together and have that really ingrained in your workplace and ingrained in all workers' minds, then the whole idea of labor management relations breaks down. You know, a lot of people talk about strike as a dirty word, but strike means that everyone has to understand what's on the line and what they're willing to do to fight for what they want. And what that does is it encourages agreements because there is a deadline, um, there is a risk assessment for both parties, and when you have that deadline and you have that risk assessment, it tends to drive people to um, come to compromise. Yeah, and so that struggle, that power struggle is important. 
So one of the changes that we've seen just the last couple of years is that after years and years of strikes declining along with the declining percentage of workers represented by unions, suddenly we've seen an upsurge in strikes again. I think about the Rev Red strikes, the teachers launching these really remarkable mass strikes in parts of the country. We don't see traditional uh, strengths in unionization. We've seen strikes in all kinds of places, grocery workers, General Motors, auto workers. Uh, mm. This is the biggest <laughs> strike years uh, last year since the 1980s. Uh, but it seems that there's something bigger than just more strikes. There seems a different character to these strikes. Uh, what, what do you think is going on with this increase in strikes? And are we going to see uh, more of this going forward and different kinds of strikes? Yes, we are. I mean, look at the strike wave that started with the West Virginia school walkouts in 2008. You know, this raised wages for all state workers. Um, and that was because all 55 counties stood together. And in fact, um, even the county executives were in support of these strikes because the communities were not getting what they needed in order to attract people to the communities, educate the children, and um, give proper pay and uh, working conditions that allows people to contribute uh, to where they live. And so um, they, even though the law was completely against uh, these school employees, they did not have the right to collectively bargain. They did not have the right to strike. They did not have a state budget that was supportive of what they were asking for. And yet by taking action together and understanding that they were in this together and ha experiencing that real common uh, interest in raising the standards for everyone, that's how they won. And that is what is going on across the board. If you look, we took flight attendants out to the GM picket line. And the issues that they were talking about are the same issues that our members are experiencing. This, um, this idea that you've got temp workers or a two-tiered uh, working system is something that flight attendants understand very well and that we understand in almost every other industry. The issue of scheduling and being required to come in uh, for overtime, that is an issue that flight attendants understand. The issue of understaffing so that we're doing more on the job with fewer of us there to do it and how that relates to safety and health. These are common issues across the board, and that's what's going on, is that people are identifying that they've lost their retirement, they've had cuts in pay, they don't have control over their schedules, there's less staffing than there's ever been, and there's every effort to define the business as how it defines a value of someone's work. And people, have, people are saying the jig is up. I mean, this is, uh, the jig is up on the gig economy. <laughs> The jig is up on um, this, um, the way that Wall Street has tried to redefine work according to um, a business practice rather than recognizing the value of every single person. And as Unite Here says in the great hotel strikes against the biggest hotel chain in the country and now continuing on for all of us, it's something the whole labor movement is taking up, one job should be enough. And the truth is that across industries, People are working two and three jobs just to get by. So there's a real common understanding of the inequality in this country, what that means for our, for our families, and there's a real desire to stand together, this idea of solidarity and how we have got to stand together to take back um, our, the value of our work. So the other part of building labor power traditionally as well as using the strike weapon has been 
organizing, uh, bringing new members into the union. Uh, one of the biggest ones in your own industry uh, issues in, in the last couple of decades has been around Delta, which is the largest non-union employer of flight attendants in the industry. And there's been efforts to try and organize it, the 2008, 2010, votes, very close votes uh, that organizing efforts failed. Uh, can you talk a little about where organizing efforts stand at Delta today, uh, what's going on now? Yes, and I just want to note that as these strikes have worked and people have seen results where they don't necessarily see results with governments, uh, with the government, um, people are interested in being a part of unions. And so there, the fact that there is this overwhelming positivity towards unions in this country right now makes the ground fertile for organizing. And every time there's a strike where workers win, people want to be a part of the winning team, and that encourages people to come out. And we heard a lot of uh, workers expressing interest in joining unions after the GM strike, um, after the grocery workers strike, after the teachers strikes. And certainly we are experiencing that at Delta today. So a big change from uh, 2010, the last election, to today is that more than 40% of the workforce has been newly hired since that time. So they don't have any of the baggage of the old uh, anti-union campaign. Um, Delta is a very anti-union employer and integrates this into everything they do, including propaganda throughout the training <laughs> that uh, the flight attendants are required to go to these meetings uh, about how Delta is different because they don't have a union. Um, but people are not buying it because when they go home, they've got um, more often union favorability in their household. And this next generation understands that this is the first time that the generations before them have not made it possible for them to move forward and make life better. In fact, they have everything on the line. They may even lose their entire world um, based on what the former generations have done. So there is a real uh, understanding that uh, workers have to stand together and that the people who have been decision makers traditionally have not been looking out for their best interests. And that is making it very fertile ground for us to organize in addition to the fact that our union has been so uh, visible to flight attendants on being at the forefront of fighting for our safety and health and fighting for our, um, for our jobs and our careers and respect on the job. And so there's a lot of excitement at Delta. It's a completely new day. And the biggest difference is that in Atlanta, where it has always been very difficult to break through, we are seeing that this campaign is actually being driven from Atlanta, which is on its head um, from the past. So there is a, a real new day here for organizing for workers, uh, certainly for flight attendants. And it's really important because as Delta is non-union, they can keep uh, the the uh, flight attendant costs for the airline down, and in fact, they pay $100 million less a year than United Airlines does uh, with our flight attendant contract there, um, and that is a lot of money over the last nine years that they have not had a union. So $100 million is a big incentive for this company to keep the union off the property, and we can't push our careers forward at United or anywhere else if we don't organize at Delta. We also can't get laws that support the work that we do as flight attendants if we don't improve our numbers and have more power on the Hill. Because every time we advocate for something on the Hill, Delta comes in and speaks for the flight attendants and says that it's not something that they want. If you get the election results that you're hoping for, what, what do you think, uh, what are the key policy changes do you think that are most important for, uh, for union members to see? When one 
uh, worker out there is injured. Uh, it's an injury to all. This is the age-old adage in the labor movement. And so we have to have the ability to stand together and conduct sympathy strikes and um, really create that worker power to get resolutions and to get our economy working in the yeah. other direction so that we're not uh, living in this era of uh, increased inequality. Yeah, you're really uh, suggesting kind of a shift in how the labor movement thinks about itself, too, as kind of social unionism, uh, you know, contrasting with the traditional business union, the more transactional approach the labor movement traditionally traditionally taken. It sounds like you're calling for a real change in how the labor movement itself organizes itself, thinks about itself. Well, listen, uh, PATCO was a strong, unified uh, politically strong union, uh, but the one thing that they forgot was what Mother, Mother Jones taught us, and that is that you've got to bring everyone to your side, and you've got to organize with the community, and you've got to make these strikes resonate with the community and understand how it's going to help everyone around us, and that is really important in order to win. Um, you can't do this alone. Uh, we have to change the way we're looking at this, and who better to do that than uh, frankly, women and people of color who have built up uh, structures within our communities to take care of one another, and we couldn't do it without uh, depending on each other. And that is the way forward for the labor movement. Well, it's interesting. The labor movement itself and membership has become increasingly more diverse. Uh, we're getting closer to equal male and female unionization, African Americans more represented than other groups. Uh, but the leadership of the labor movement at times seems like it's still the leadership of the movement from 40, 50 years ago. What does the labor movement have to do in terms of its own leadership to kind of develop a more diverse representative leadership? You know, this can change uh, by the members getting involved and taking action. It will naturally change. Uh, there will naturally be challenges in elections or the, the leadership who's in place today will be responsive to this new activism from the grassroots. Um, so this is not something that I think is going to change from the top. It has to change from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of energy that we're seeing. And we're seeing unions change their position because of this activism from the grassroots already. Um, so it is a natural progression that will yeah. take place. And um, certainly I would call on all, uh, all leaders in the labor movement to be very uh, astute to this. I'm on one labor board where I am the only one sitting there. And I talked mm -hmm. with the... Um, the, the leaders of that board and said that we have got to do more um, to change the way this looks, because as long as we continue to uh, project this idea that the labor movement is only for a few, we're in trouble. But I am, I am really not concerned about this, because yeah. I believe that as we continue to spread the message, the grassroots is going to take care of this and take ownership of the labor movement. And it's going to be a labor movement that doubles and triples in size over the next 10 years. Yeah, and one of the things you already mentioned is that we're seeing this shift in youth attitudes towards unionization, and the, the data that we're looking at suggests a really dramatic kind of change in terms of how they view the economic system and then also unions within it. And a, a, a big manifestation I've noticed, you know, is this, this striking unionization wave at some of the new media companies, the sort of Voxes and other new media companies, which is, is interesting uh, in terms of how the, these workers in this new economy are thinking about it. But also, uh, when you look at how they're communicating and organizing, they're using these new media platforms. And, and you go on Twitter yourself, you post a lot on, on Twitter and communicate that way. Uh, what advice would you give to 
people interested in labor in terms of how to communicate their message, how to use that voice in this new media environment we're in? Well, first of all, I think it's really important for people to understand that you are not going to organize a single worker on Twitter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So get that out of your head. If you're spending more time on Twitter than you are on talking to people, um, you have lost already. Um, So workers organize by building relationships with one another. And that's just simply not something that you can do on social media. Social media is important. It is very important. It's important for um, influencing uh, the overall macro messages that are going out in the country. Um, so I, I use it to promote labor's voice, and that is really important. It's also important um, that decision makers are seeing that. They are actually moved by that because a lot of people who are in decision-making positions right now, their only touch with the real world is a place like Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's important. Uh, it's important in terms of encouraging workers to take actions um, so that we can um, move the national dialogue around what's happening. But if you think that that is where you're going to do your organizing, then yeah. you are sunk. Um, so, so it's a tool, um, absolutely. But get out there and do, uh, you know, age-old grassroots organizing that's built on relationships where you understand where every single individual worker's needs are, what their concerns are, what motivates them, and that is the only way to organize forward. That ties into something that I've often thought in the current discussions you hear in the media around the future of work, that it's very technologically deterministic, right? That it's going to be technology will determine what our future is going to be, what work's going to be like. Uh, you know, one thing we know from looking at the history of work is that it's a lot about the choices that we make as a society, how we organize our society. So I want to finish up by checking the question back to you on where you see the future of labor going and the future of work going. Where where do you see us going uh, over the next uh, coming years? I think that if we do our jobs right, that this is an opportunity for people to uh, get back to uh, the slogan that we had 100 years ago, which is that we should have bread and roses too. This is an opportunity for us to participate in the productivity improvements uh, through technology. And if we do this right, we can spend less time working and more time being mothers and fathers and friends um, and uh, be thinking about how we move our world forward, be thinking about how we solve the major essential crisis of our time, climate change. Um, and we can have a lot more time, each one of us, to contribute to that and to get more value for our work. So we sh- it should no longer be the 40-hour work week. It should be, at a minimum, the 30-hour work week. Um, and we should all share in the benefits of uh, increasing our wages for the work that we're doing and spending less time on the job doing it. So uh, I think that that is the future if we can organize and have a paradigm shift about um, who gets to participate in the value of our work and what is important uh, to our world and to our families. Well, that's a great message message, uh, to look forward to. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, These have been a really interesting conversation and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Work. You can subscribe to our podcast at work.ilr.cornell.edu or on iTunes. Do you have a recommendation for a guest or topic to be discussed on a future episode? Just click on the link in the show notes of this episode and leave your suggestions. Again, thank you for listening.